Welcome to the Healing Trauma Podcast, a space for those who are healing from complex and developmental trauma. Introducing your host, Monique Coven, a certified trauma recovery coach, survivor, and thriver. The intent of the podcast is to provide helpful information with insight that can validate, encourage, and support you on your healing journey. You're going to hear stories from other survivors and trauma experts, featuring therapists, coaches, and practitioners. We will open up the conversation on effective trauma healing modalities, practices, and tools. If you are interested in trauma recovery coaching, as well as recommended books and healing resources, head over to www.thehealingtraumapodcast.com. And now, here is your host, Monique Coven. This episode is sponsored by Tyndale House Publishing. Change your brain every day. 366 Days to a Better Brain, Mind, and Life. Psychiatrist and clinical neuroscientist Dr. Daniel Amen draws on over 40 years of clinical practice overseeing the treatment of tens of thousands of patients to give you the most effective daily habits he has seen to help you improve your brain, master your mind, and boost your memory, and help you feel happier, healthier, and more connected to those you love. Pre-order is now available at Tyndale.com. Welcome back to the last episode of 2022. And for this episode, I am going to be actually sharing an episode that was from last year. It was a favorite of mine, and that's why I'm sharing it. It is with trauma therapist Andy Kolber, and she wrote the book Try Softer. So we're going to be talking about her book. But this whole concept of Try Softer is huge in my own life because I think it's so important and in the people that I work with that when we are approaching how we are with ourselves, we want to think about trying softer in every way as we connect with the parts of us that are struggling, trying to do better, trying to feel better. If we can have an orientation of softness, it really changes how our insides experience it. Because when you think about it, for most people who have experienced trauma, there was no safe space. There was no space to feel. There was no compassionate witness. And when we can be that for ourselves, if we can be that compassionate place, and I know that that can be really challenging, especially at the beginning. And that's why I really love this concept of softer, because it phrases it as coming with softness. Sometimes the idea of compassionate sounds like, whoa, that's just too much. But the idea of softer seems a little bit more maybe tangible for us to do. So I hope that you really enjoy this episode and that you find it helpful in your own healing journey. And now on to the episode. 
Hi, Andi. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's good to be here. I'm so happy to have you. I read your book, Try Softer, uh, and I just just loved the approach Mm -hmm. to trauma recovery. There was a, like the name says, such a softness, gentleness Mm -hmm. that as I was reading it, I felt like this warm, what is that called? A weighted blanket was over me, which is so Mm -hmm. lovely when we are healing from trauma. You know, those resources that can be soothing. And that's what I felt your book was, is. And so I wanted to, to have you on and to talk a bit about the book, about your life. You are a trauma survivor and a therapist, which is really amazing because you really get it. So I guess, you know, I'll start with just the title, which why did you call it or why did you write Try Softer? Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you so much for the kind words because Um, I think, you know, when you, it's such a long process getting to the point where you finally publish your book and you, and you hope, you know, there are things that you hope that your book will do. And when you hear that someone tells you and gives you feedback, like I felt so soothed and it felt so gentle, like that was exactly like my, one of my deepest hopes. So first I just want to say, thank you so much. Yeah. So try softer. There's, there's layers to it for sure. The first thing to say is, you know, I really started writing this book from a place. I didn't, I didn't set out in my career to think I was going to be a writer. That wasn't, I've always enjoyed writing, but it wasn't like, this is what I'm going to do with my life. Um, But I got to a certain place in my own trauma recovery, my own work as a therapist, where I felt like I wanted, well, first of all, I felt like I had more work to do and I was getting curious about that, but I also had this, like this urge and 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 I think it was probably my younger parts. They were like telling me that they, they needed more from me. And so I began writing this book and I had no idea what I was going to call it at the beginning. All that I knew was I was writing the thing that I wish I had had especially when I was right around 2021, you know, I, I won't go real far into my story, but I grew up in a family with just severe dysfunction. My parents' marriage was, I mean, it it just, it was violent. It was, it was scary. It was unstable. And I had to grow up way too quick way too quick, new things that I shouldn't have known, had to become someone, become various people that I wasn't to survive. And so by the time I got to my early twenties, man, I didn't even know who I was. (laughs) I mean, I had survived by being this achiever, sort of good girl person, but I felt so lost and, and so really when I started writing Trace Softer, it was like sort of to that girl. It was like, this is what I wish that I had had when like these kind of resources then. And so as I continued the writing process, I, this story came up for me from my early therapy days. And it was from my supervisor who was, um, you know, when I was working towards my licensure, I had a supervisor and he was so dear to me, like just gentle, wise, I mean, just every, you know, that co-regulating presence. I mean, he was such a gift. And I I think, you know, I was doing some good work, but my poor nervous system did not know what it felt like to care about people without taking everything they were experiencing into my own self. And so one day John says to me, Andy, you're doing such great work. I'm so proud of you. And 
I just, I wanted to ask you though, what would it, what would it be like if instead of trying so hard, if you tried softer and when he, and when John said this to me, like I had like 17 emotions at the same time, like part of me was like, oh my gosh, that sounds amazing. And then another part of me was a little bit angry. Like, you don't think I want to try softer. You don't think I want to like rest. But over time, that was like the seed that continued to bloom. And it really gave me this sort of anchor that ultimately to get back to your original question, that what try softer has come to mean to me is learning and knowing how to pay compassionate attention to our experience. And so when I talk about try softer, it's almost always in that context of what does it look like in whatever situation we're in to bring that compassionate attention with us? Yes, I love that. And you weaved that in so beautifully because, yeah, the concept of of experience compa- experiencing compassion to ourselves is so foreign when we've been a trauma survivor. It's just mm. foreign because it's just survival. That's it. Where's compassion? We're just running for our lives. So I love that. I love that. That make that makes so much sense. So I'm curious if you're comfortable maybe even sharing uh, a little bit of, I mean, you shared a bit about your history and your a bit about your story. How has that, how has that led you to want to help other people? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, I think in my journey, it's been such an interesting journey. If I can, if I can step outside of myself a little bit, like when I look back, I mean, to be totally honest, I didn't know how bad it was for a long time. And I know that sounds weird. Maybe it doesn't for your listeners. Maybe some will have always known for me. I always viewed myself as very strong and I viewed myself as like almost like I got out or I, I had it better than other people in some ways. Or so there were like lots of ways that I like minimized what I went through. And a lot of the feedback that I would get is how well I was doing. So, you know, one of the things I talk about in Try Softer is white knuckling. And I talk about white knuckling through the lens that it's different than hard work, right? So hard work, there's nothing wrong with hard work. And I think we're really made with the capacity to desire working hard at times. You know, our bodies can do some amazing things. That's, there's nothing wrong with that. But I delineate that from white knuckling through the lens that white knuckling comes from a place of like, survival and and protection. And so it's that sense that if I don't do what they want, if I don't achieve, if I don't push, if I don't say yes, it's always like, it's never like, oh yeah, I want to go get that. Like, Ooh, I want to, I want to win that race. Or like, you know, there's some good, there's good times that we push ourselves, but this is from this place of, of it's really, you know, kind of a nod to our protective mechanisms. And so for me, I had lived almost the majority of my entire life, always white knuckling or dissociating, you know, and the dissociation, there's a, there's a lot of my childhood. I don't remember, which has been a source of grief for me that, that, that is that that's true. But as I think about that, um, with your question, like why, um, I think for me, I have always been a very empathic person. I, I, I care very deeply. I have, I have a really big heart. It is probably more my default 
to care and prioritize other people's pain over my own, which really was how I was socialized in my family was, you know, I call it leaving myself that leaving my own body, you know, and you can, we can, I'm sure you maybe talked about the fawn response in your, in your podcast before, or, but that, that need to sort of over accommodate and give. Um, But there is a part of that, that is just also me. Like I have just a big heart. And so I think over the years, I've always had this desire to alleviate pain. I have always wanted to be a part of alleviating and and really empowering people. But I think it really came together when I began to experience my own healing. But I didn't know yet how bad my own story even was. And so as I began to name and recognize and contextualize, it was like I had this deep desire to say, I bet other people have this experience too. Like there are other people who think that it's not okay to say that they're trauma survivors because they're able to have a job or like things where, you know, just because you're functioning in one area of your life doesn't mean that you haven't carried a boulder. Doesn't mean, you know, because that was my story is that I learned if you can get through it, then you got nothing to complain about. I mean, that was kind of my internal voice. Like, who do you think you are making yourself the center of attention just because you're in pain? And so it's taken years and years and years to learn to soften into honoring my own story and recognizing that when I honor my own story, I have such better capacity to honor the stories of others because I come from my true self. Not my trauma response that feels like what will happen if I don't. Yeah, that's so beautifully explained. And I think uh, (laughs) the white knuckling part is what I think we can all relate to because that's the survival. That's the, that's the hypervigilance. That's the, um, yeah, that's the nervous system state that we end up working in And it makes life really, really hard. And then all of those thoughts about it and the criticism about it just adds more stress to all of that. So I love the way you differentiated between the two. So I was wondering, like, like your current strategies that you suggested in the book, could you talk maybe a bit about those versus some other strategies? Like, how are they different? Yeah. So how are the strategies in the book different than... Than than maybe other approaches? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. I think for me, I definitely um, am weaving together multiple approaches in my book. And I think that's probably the thing that makes it the most unique in the sense that it's like, this is how I do therapy. Basically, it's basically because I, I have learned as a trauma therapist, you need lots of different tools, (laughs) like because people are different, their stories are different. Their nervous systems have been shaped differently. And even though, you know, I, I say I come from a trauma informed lens or I, and I'm a, I mean, I'm a trauma therapist, um, but there are definitely people who come in who have, frankly, they don't recognize that, part of what's happening is based in past disturbances, you know? And so, so I guess just to go back to your original question, part of what I would say, what makes what I'm doing unique is, is 
the breadth of pulling from, you know, cause it's like, we talk about self-compassion, but then we also use interpersonal neurobiology, but then we make sure to, you know, bring in polyvagal theory. Um, but then we're also talking about mindfulness, but then we're also talking about somatic psychology. And so for me, I think what the key is, is that there is a sense in which there's a trust of saying, I believe, you know, I, I do integrate some faith elements um, in mine. And, and part of that for me is there's a trust that I believe God has wired our bodies to not only have wisdom of know how, knowing how to heal, but also when given sort of access to more wisdom, that it sort of just grows. <laughs> like, like we build on that. And so I think that's the thing where it's like, there, there is this central, the central wisdom of when we have the, like the ability to stay in our window of tolerance, to stay connected to our integrated self, that we then will be able to pull the tools out of the toolbox that we need. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I, I love that. And I think that you're so right. It's almost like, well, it is. It's like given the right circumstances and all the right ingredients, we ha then we are ripe to begin to heal, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And so many of us have tried going to other forms of places. We tried and we're like, why is this not working? And then we blame ourselves. And I love all the things you mentioned because those are all things that are really, really so important when healing trauma. And I just, on top of it all, the umbrella of self-compassion, you know, mm. is just so healing and so beautiful. So I was thinking about compassion when it comes to understanding that our responses are not behaviors from our head, that, that one of the huge pieces is when we understand that our nervous systems have been shaped by the trauma. Can you talk about that a bit? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I know you're super familiar with the window of tolerance, which I love, and I'm, I'm so grateful for the, the work that you're doing around that. And, um, you know, a couple of things, I think one of the things that I think is important to name is that even though the understanding around our bodies, there's more people understanding that, which I feel so grateful, but it, it's so, it was so important to me in TriSofter to, to bring in the language of the window of window of tolerance in part, because it has been transformative in my own life. It has been absolutely transformative for me in the work that I do with my clients. I am trained in EMDR and I find that to be essential. I mean, I honestly frankly, don't know how you do trauma work without it. <laughs> like, because I think there is just this sense in which, you know, we talk a lot these days about safety, you know, and polyvagal was so important as we have that discussion. And I really think that this polyvagal and safety and window of tolerance, they, they hold hands in that sense where when we can understand that our body really can only feel truly safe when we have at least a toe, <laughs> in our window. Like we don't have to be all the way in, but we got to at least have something connecting us, you know? And as we do that, first of all, just the knowledge, I think just in and of itself can birth such compassion because then we're, 
you know, then it's like, you think back, I know for me as a survivor, I know for so many of my clients, they think about their lives and they're like, oh, I wasn't being difficult. I was experienced, you know, I was in my sympathetic nervous system. Oh, it wasn't that I didn't care. I was in a collapsed state. Oh, it's not, you know, and I mean, it, it doesn't change that those things were hard and it, and it doesn't change that there's often more work to do as we unwind those responses, as we uh, reorient to what is true now, as we help our younger selves to come to truly know that that's over, you know, God willing. Um, but the compassion, I think, can be a way in to to staying with ourselves, to staying in the window, to softening towards why, why we might be leaving in the first place. And obviously, as you know, if we're not actually safe, that we have to put that to the side, because if we're not actually safe, of course, our body is going to continue to react to threat. I mean, that's what we're wired to do. But in a conversation in which you know, we are experiencing safety as though it's still a threat. I think the other thing compassion does, and, you know, for those who are listening, feel free to take this with a grain of salt. I I try to offer that a lot because I know people have different experiences with the way things are framed. But for me, it's really important to, part of my process of reparenting myself is When I view myself in pain with compassion, that is a form of that reparenting. And and Kristen Neff, you know, she talks about how self-compassion activates our mammalian caregiving system. You know, that and what that does is it actually physiologically helps inhibit that cortisol. And I mean, that is more than just a good idea, right? Like that is physical changes in our body. And so you know, this compassionate attention idea, it's like we can weave this into so many trauma concepts, but as we're able to access that compassion, and sometimes that takes some work, there's no shame in that. We don't always start there. There's no shame in that. But as we begin to have that ability, I just find that it it really um, allows for and really creates space in which we're better able to integrate with our full selves. Yes, yes, that's so true. So true. Why do you think it does take time to mm. have compassion mm. on ourselves? It's a really, really great question. You know, I think for me, it a lot of it goes back to attachment and that those attachment frameworks in our bodies, right? So the ways that we experienced are the people who gave us our earliest care, you know, whether you want to, whether it's your caregivers or your parents, the way that they were with you creates those really early templates about how we see the world and how we see others, how we see God and how we see ourselves. And obviously there's a lot of nuance to that, but if those frameworks were not good enough, If those included lots of criticism, if those included a lot of harm, if those included lots of neglect, if those were themselves the source of the trauma, it makes so much sense to me that, you know, the younger and the earlier and the more chronic that harm, it's sort of like 
whatever you put in is also what it's going to take. Not, not exactly, but it's also going to take time to rebuild it. It's going to take time to unwind it and rebuild it, which is why it is a big difference when someone's had good enough parenting. I mean, we know research shows us that parents are the resource for their kids. And when kids have that, that, you know, for the most part, not perfect, but fairly regulated, somewhat attuned parents, they are so much better equipped to move through hardship. And when, and for those of us who really didn't have that, and we are coming from a life where whatever else you put on top of that, but without the resource or the protection of what we absolutely needed, it just makes so much sense that instead of compassion, we would shame ourselves. We would push ourselves. We would maybe hate in some ways ourselves because there's a sense in which that's a protection. Because if I shame myself, then you don't have to. And if I push myself really, really hard, then you don't have to. Because I've already learned what I need to do to survive. And obviously, I think there's some nuance to that. But just understanding so much of that in context of our story, where did we learn to treat ourselves like that? Yeah, that compassion piece. I find it to be, it's so powerful. And yet early on, we have to, just like anything with healing, we hold it with an open hand. We honor that it doesn't, you don't, you don't just flip a switch. You get to know it. You get curious with it. You see if you can befriend it. You see how you can work with it. And often over time, we can soften into it. There's that word soften. I love. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's just beautiful. It's interesting because sometimes people will say to me, well, it's not like they told me they hated me. You know, although that that has happened, you know, there wasn't any words. I wasn't told I was stupid. I wasn't. But that I mean, that doesn't necessarily it doesn't have to be words. It could be just what was experienced. If you're completely neglected, yeah, that the message is, you know, you're invisible. You don't matter. All of those things. So I love what you said about it takes time. Because a lot of people feel angry even at that, at, at their younger parts, um, yes. towards their parts. Yeah. Have yeah. you found that? Have you found that? I have. I mean, I, and, I, and I think there is a correlation sometimes with, you know, oftentimes the more severe or acute the trauma, the more complicated the trauma, the more complex the trauma. I think there's a sense in which the system gets so fragmented and that you know, I think the thing that's true about our bodies is we want a story. We want a story. We crave a story to make sense. And if the only story, right, like kiddos are egocentric and that is appropriate for the developmental stages, right? That's absolutely appropriate. There's nothing wrong with that. And what can happen is that when you're young and you experience a lot of harm, it's unconscionable it to think that the ones who are caring for you were the cause of the harm. Because we, you know, even if you think of it through the lens of attachment, like we will do whatever we can, especially when we're little, to maintain the attachment because some part of us knows we have to have that. How else are we going to get food? Where are we going to live? Who's going to take us? Like what's good? You know what I mean? And so I think that interplay comes together to be, well, the story is 
you know, and there's lots of nuance to the story, but a very common theme is that if you weren't a bad kid, if you weren't selfish, if you hadn't done this, if you wouldn't, weren't so loud, if you weren't so needy, whatever that is, we learn to hook onto the story because then at least, even though it's a painful story, at least we can make some sort of sense of the story. Yeah. And that makes sense. What are some things that people can start to practice, do, think about that could be helpful? I always try to get like a little something that that listeners can leave with. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that you could maybe suggest? Yeah. I mean, I think some of this for your listeners, it may not be new, but I'll give a couple practices just in, I, just in case, partly because in case they haven't heard it, I think it's good to, to talk about. I think the first one, which I think now as trauma is becoming more talked about might already be heard, but um, grounding, I just can't say enough about grounding. <laughs> like I think for many of us, those of us who, um, whether you are just beginning to uncover how bad your trauma was, whether um, the pandemic is, has affected you and you're have, you know, experiencing, uh, re, you know, re-experiencing flashbacks, those types of things. One of the things that's so special about grounding is that it is not as, it's not cumulative. <laughs> we can do it right here in the here and now. And the more we practice it, and even when we practice it, when we're in a safe and social state, we'll make it easier when we begin to get into more protective trauma responses. And so, you know, there's lots of different ways to practice grounding. I honestly, one of my favorite things is to get outside like to, cause nature is such a, there's so much sensory information to, to take in. And for our bodies, um, you know, I mean, there's research showing how important, like even just nature bathing, just being in nature in and of itself is sort of can bring up that co-regulating presence. And so for folks uh, who are hearing this, you know, that's one thing I, I practice grounding all the time. I mean, all the time. It's it's usually the first thing I do before I do any other resourcing because that gets us to a place where we're at least getting closer to neutral or, you know, ventral vagal or window of tolerance, whatever language you use. We're trying to get back to some sense of homeostasis. The other thing with that, there's, you know, there's, there's like the five senses you can use. I love to get really specific, like look at your bookshelf and name colors, uh, feel the texture, feel the weight of the book. You know, what are the different fonts? I mean, you can, the more that you bring yourself into the present moment, the more that it will help sort of inhibit and bring you back into the present. So again, honestly, I just can't say enough about grounding. (laughs) I think another one, you know, a self-compassion practice, and this one is, you know, definitely from the work of Kristen Neff. So I just want to make sure I name, you know, she's done so much around that, but a really simple self-compassion practice is, you know, like, let's say that inner critic getting real loud. Let's say you sent an email at work and you had a typo and then you're just like ruminating because you're like, I just, 
man, whatever, whatever that voice is saying. A great thing to practice, um, you know, I I put my hand on my heart a lot. I do it all the time. And, you know, feel free to do that or not if that doesn't resonate. But it helps me just to, to just sort of connect with my body. And again, you, sometimes you have to do grounding first, which that's totally cool. But if I'm seeing this situation and I'm noticing like, oh my gosh, I feel the tightness in my neck and I'm feeling shame. I might think about someone that I, that I love, you know, a dear friend, my other friend, who's a writer. And if she had made a mistake talking to her editor and she was like, Andy, I want to crawl into a hole. I feel like I shouldn't even be able to be in this You know what I mean? Like whatever that is to really think about what would I say to her? Like, would I be like, yeah, you should crawl in a hole, (laughs) like, you know, but to be like, oh, you know, so-and-so, oh my gosh. Like when I hear that, like, I just, I have so much compassion for you. It's, it's okay to make mistakes. People make mistakes literally all the time. Not to mention we are in a pandemic. The stress in the world is super high. The L, you know, the shared nervous system of the world, the collective is quite intense. Like, of course that makes sense. It's okay that you made a mistake. And then what would it be like to see, could I even a little bit view myself with my friend? Like, could I keep my friend there? And I could, could I have my myself sit next to her? And could we, could we receive that together? Like, what would that be like? And so a lot of that is just experimenting, right? Because, and so much of my work in therapy with clients is it's not flipping a switch. It's us working together to collaborate, to say, what, what's that like for you? What are you noticing? You know, and sometimes it's like, boom, it works. And sometimes they're like, Ooh, my inner critic just got louder. (laughs) And then we have to work with that. And so I partly name that because this is why it matters that we say this can take time. This is why it matters that we say, if you need more resources, if you need more support, there's no shame in that. So in the last one, I would just say it's a simple one. I mean, there's so many ones I could say, but I can't say enough about curiosity. Curiosity can truly be a game changer because it can shift. You know, Dan Siegel talks about that, that, the brain, like in a brain that is curious, the curious is the same sort of marks in their brain as resilience. Like that's what it looks like when we are resilient is like it, like the the brain scan is the same, meaning it can shift something that feels dangerous into something that we can again, soften into like, Oh, that's that's interesting that I'm being, that my heart is beginning to race as I'm reading this email. You know, I want to get curious about this, but first I'm going to take a little break and then I'm going to come back. And so that curiosity leads differently. It's different than the shame. It gives us a way in without having to totally shut it down or without having to go totally into hyper arousal or hypo arousal. And so, you know, the more that you can practice curiosity, even in small ways, I think that really can be cumulative. Oh, that's so good. I hope people took some notes because those are three (laughs) great grounding tools that we should practice. Super. So is there anything you want to say before we close? Well, first, just thank you so much for having me. I'm really, you know, I'm really grateful for your presence in the world. I'm grateful for the ways that you offer resources to survivors. I think um, if there's any, I mean, there's a lot of folks in the world who've experienced harm. 
But I think one of the things that tends to be true about folks who've experienced complex trauma is that it often started so young and it can be so hard to navigate because it is hard. Sometimes you don't know anything different. And so the, so yeah, I just want to end with saying, you know, I just took to the listeners, like I just honor your story and how hard it's been to probably get to even where you are right now. And then, and then just lastly, thank you so much for having me. I mean, I'm just, this is, yeah, this is just something that's so dear to my heart. So thank you. Oh, thank you. So tell us if people want to read your book, which now has a workbook, is that right? Yes. Yes. So it's a, um, so TriSofter came out back in January of 2020 and you can find that wherever books are sold, um, or on my website, ondicolber.com. And then as of October 5th, my, it's called the TriSofter guided journey. And so what I've done there is it's kind of just, it's kept the same vein, but my, my hope and my goal is actually just to deepen, you know, so it's taking these practices and adding on and building, um, again, really trying to keep that compassionate posture, but making it accessible. I mean, that's really my heart is that this is to make it as accessible as possible to folks um, so that, you know, whether you're in therapy or you're doing coaching, the goal is to say, let's get as much wraparound resources as possible. And so that's my hope that it will be part of that. Great. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you.